Welcome back to another episode of Confessing the Faith. I'm Mike Tizier, and today with me again is Joe Anady and Austin Pine. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Good to be here. Yeah, good to be here with you guys. And uh, in our last episode, the introduction of this series, we um, talked about what the purpose of this platform will be. And one of the things we want to do here is discuss and address the questions that arise within our congregation at Emmaus Christian Fellowship. And uh, so we're just going to kick it off today with um, discussing, you know, what kind of church Emmaus Christian Fellowship is. That's a question that comes up a lot, right? I get, yeah. it, quite, I get it quite a bit, not only from people in uh, the community who are looking in upon us and who want to know, but even from our own folks who've been with us for some time, like, hey, what should we call ourselves exactly, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's a great question for us to address. And maybe I'll ask it of you guys. What, what would you say if someone uh, asked you the question, what kind of church is Emmaus Christian Fellowship? I think proudly we can stand upon the tradition as Reformed Baptists, right, that we uh, hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and we, um, yeah, identify with a rich tradition that's gone before us. So it's it's something to be, uh, I think, proud of to a degree and, and confident in that we're not in this alone, but we are surrounded by a, a whole uh, cloud of witnesses, right, a body of believers that we're in this journey together with. Yeah, I think Reformed Baptist is a good term, but in all honesty, um, how many people know what that is, in your yeah. opinion? Yeah, that's true. That's a great question. I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, different terms or definitions can float around for those terms, I should say. Um, right? they're, they're loaded terms, I think. You know, people mm-hmm. have something in their mind when they hear Reformed, and they, I think, definitely have something in their mind when they hear the word Baptist, you know, um, depending on their experience. Absolutely. Sometimes they think of that word very positively, sometimes very negatively, you know, so these things. Well, there's such a spectrum involved too, because you have people from uh, all over the planet, all over the country, uh, coming with different tradition of Baptists. You have people like the Westboro Baptist Church, yeah, if true. you can call it a church that is viewed so negatively and is all over the media. And then you have, you know, your traditional Southern Baptists that mm-hmm. I think people more identify as, as the Baptist tradition. But, uh, you know, there's... There's so much involved, like we're saying here. So, yeah. well, on that on that vein, let's let's get into that. Uh, what does it mean to be reformed? Well, again, a loaded loaded question, loaded term. Um, but I think there are just definitely some uh, qualifications um, for it. So, uh, yeah, Joe, what do you have to say here? I well, guess I, I think one thing I would want to say is that when we're talking about being reformed, we're we're not necessarily saying that we belong to a particular tradition or family tree of churches. Right. But that we adhere right. to certain principles, which um, were characteristic of the Protestant Reformation that mm-hmm. um, you know was sparked within the 16th century and was also continued in the 17th century. There's certain principles I think um, that someone must um, demonstrate in order to legitimately call themselves reformed. And what I've seen is that there are some churches or denominations that have reformed in the title. But when you look in, you start to wonder, are they really reformed? You know, so they must have come from somewhere, but they've lost these principles along the way. And I think there are also others who would define reform so narrowly that unless you come from a very particular family tree or unless you adhere to particular documents, they don't consider you reformed at all. And I think those are two extremes that we need to be aware of. And so I think the best way to go about this is just to talk about the, the, the principles of the Protestant Reformation. And, and to say these are the things that we hold near and dear to to our hearts. And that's what we want to do in, in this episode is to talk about these principles. I, I think it does need to be said from the outset that this is not going to be an exhaustive treatment of these 
these things. Um, this episode is going to be devoted to just introducing very, very briefly these principles. So we will not be able to elaborate on them in detail. We'll come back to them another time in future episodes to elaborate on each of these, Lord willing. And also, we're not going to be able to defend them scripturally. Uh, that needs to be done. You know, we need to make a case for why these things are good and true um, and solid principles, but that that's going to have to wait for another time. And so uh, we need to get to the principles themselves. Um, what do you guys think? I know you've thought on this subject. We've talked about them together. Um, what's the first thing you would mention? If someone asked you, what does it mean to be reformed? What, what, what does that entail? What was the first? What would be the first thing you go to? Well, I think historically we can uh, root ourselves in the the you know what's commonly uh, called the five solas, right? We've got uh, these solas coming from Latin for alone that uh, root us in a tradition that holds these, I guess, five uh, specific principles in, in high esteem. Uh, one being sola scriptura, scripture alone, that uh, the scriptures alone are our highest authority, right? That we trust in them for. Uh, all that we need in in life and godliness, uh, sola fide, faith alone, right? Um, we're saved by uh, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not our works, right? As Martin Luther, the the great you know historic reformer, uh, fought against the Catholic Church and their practice of indulgences. Uh, he wanted to find confidence in in the faith that we place in Christ uh, rather than our works, which is you know a huge. Uh, Maybe not the spark, but one of those early on principles that uh, brought brought about this course. Uh, thirdly, sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by grace uh, through faith, right? And then sola Christus, Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ is alone, our Lord and Savior and King, right? So we serve and worship him. And uh, fifthly, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So we live for God's glory uh, so these solas, right, five very important um, concepts that we can, can I guess, identify with that uh, as the core of our faith, right, as the core of our, um, yeah, confidence and in, in salvation. And Right. I think all five of them are very important. Um, I think the doctrine of sola scriptura is probably the fountainhead of all of these um, that we stand firm upon this principle that the scriptures alone are authority for truth. And the word alone, of course, is very important here. Uh, it's not that we totally ignore uh, church history. We don't ignore those who've gone before us. We don't ignore their writings, their words, their opinion, and the opinion of the church matters. Uh, but when it comes to our final authority for all things, we look to the word of God. And, and it's from that, I think, that all of these other doctrines that we will eventually talk about flow. Mm. You know, And so, yeah, I think that's a good start. <clears throat> I think also a characteristic of, of the Reformed tradition is that we have a very high view of the supremacy and sovereignty of God in all things. To continue the S's, right? Right. I Sola, guess that's a lot Sola. of S's. Supremacy, <laughs> sovereignty. Um, but, but this is important, that, that when we think of God, we, we see God as sovereign. We see him as supreme. We see him as actively involved in his creation, governing and overseeing all the affairs of men. And so um, th- this is our doctrine of God. This is at the heart of our doctrine of God, that we see him as sovereign. Over all things, Psalm one fifteen three, for example, says, "Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases." Mm. Job thirty four fourteen through fifteen says, "If He should set His heart to it and gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust." I, the, the point in quoting these scriptures here, uh, there are many others that we could look to, is that this is the message of Scripture that we we serve God Almighty, and He is He is supreme, and He is sovereign, He is seated on His throne. So I think that's a big part of it as well. Definitely. 
has a profound effect on the way we see God and the way that we pray, the way every, every everything it seeps into all aspects of that. So it's incredibly mm-hmm. important. Right. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, flowing from that too, uh, people definitely, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of TULIP, right? The acronym uh, that, you know, people identify very heavily with Calvinism. Uh, so, you know, that's, and man, talk about another can of worms that we could open here, but um, Calvinism being reformed, I mean, they're, they're very, you know, they coincide, yeah. but one is not necessarily the other right so how do we want to that's a huge thing to, to point out people will oftentimes ask that question well what does it mean to be reformed isn't that the same thing as being a calvinist i would say mm-hmm. no calvinism does not equal reformed and this is what i mean by it um, all reformed folk are calvinists but not all calvinists are reformed if that makes sense i, th- I think that's the briefest way to say it sure that you can hold to the five points of calvinism for example and yet not really be a part of the reformed tradition uh in a, in a full sense right and, and yeah. so but but this is true reform folk are historically calvinists uh they affirm the doctrines of grace they affirm uh, what we commonly refer to as is tulip that that acrostic tulip which by the way is nothing more than than a summary uh, of what was stated in the Canons of Dort, uh, which was um, penned in, in the year uh, 1618 and on into the year 1619. I would actually encourage folks, if you're interested in this thing we call Calvinism, to take the time someday to go and read the Canons of Dort. I provided a link for it here in the show notes that we have. You know, they're, they're, It's available online. You can find it easily enough on your own. But uh, oftentimes I think people misunderstand the five points of Calvinism because they consider them in such an isolated way. Oh, and they right, seem absolutely. so abrupt and harsh and, you know, where did that come from kind of thing. Uh, it, it's good to go read some of the documents that are behind these five points because they give a much a much more full explanation of why these doctrines are good and, and true to Scripture, you know. I think a lot of people don't really realize, too, that it, it was a response to Arminianism at the time. So yeah. it's not just, yeah, like you said, it's not standing on its own. It's also in response to another situation correcting the heresy yeah Yeah, that was very prominent at the time and by the way this is not calvin's doctrine i mean he definitely was one of the preeminent theologians who defended these truths but he wasn't the only one uh this this document that we call the canons of dort was created by a a a gathering together of of many churches you know and Mm -hmm. they were defending the heresy of arminianism and pinning these things and so now what we have is a summary of these in the form of the acrostic Tulip, and just briefly, we'll say this: Tulip is an acrostic for these things. The T stands for total depravity. It has to do with how we view man. Is man uh, essentially good, or is he fallen and evil? Is he um, able to to reach up and lay a hold of God, or is he is he in a state of um, utter helplessness? I guess is a, a really brief and quick way to say it. The U stands for unconditional election. Uh, this is speaking of the electing purposes of God that He has chosen some for salvation from before. Uh, the foundations of the earth. I think the word unconditional is very important here because it uh, clarifies that it's not as if God looked down and chose those who were most lovely. You know, it's actually mm. just the opposite, that it was the, the unlovely and the weak and the foolish whom he chose in order to bring glory to his name. The L refers to limited atonement. Um, some prefer the term particular redemption, which I think actually is a little bit more helpful in understanding this concept that Christ came to die for those whom... He chose from eternity past that the the work of the Son and the atonement was consistent with the decree of God from eternity past. They're they're not 
disagreeing with one another in in their purposes and in their work. I re, uh, refers to irresistible grace. Uh, that also can be easily misunderstood. It's if, as if uh, we're saying that God drags people kicking, yeah. kicking and screaming to himself. That's not the idea here, but it's uh, effectual calling is what it's referring to, this idea that God is effective in bringing those whom he has chosen to to himself. And then perseverance of the saints. Or uh, preservation, as it's sometimes discussed, right? I think both terms are helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, perseverance of the saints emphasize this, that those who are truly in Christ will persevere. Mm-hmm. And, and the scriptures often call us to persevere. We're exhorted to persevere in the Christian life, whereas the term preservation emphasizes uh, the flip side of the coin, the other reality, that it is God who preserves us. Sure. And so both words are, are helpful and true in, in their own sense as you look at it from a, a different angle. And so that's a quick summary of TULIP. Um, heavy, heavy doctrine, yeah, yeah. but we'll return to this someday. I yeah, guess, that would be the goal. Absolutely. I think yeah. it'd be a, a good you know, time to spend. I look forward to that episode. Yeah. yeah. Good discussion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we so we've covered uh, the solas, uh, supremacy or sovereignty. Uh, we, we discussed, I guess, the doctrines of grace, um, as I guess understood in the acrostic tulip. Um, what about uh, I think also being histor or considering us uh, as historically reformed? Uh, people discuss being creedal. Uh, so we we affirm the great creeds of the historic church. Um, I, I don't think that you know. Not not too long ago, even for myself, I, I didn't even know what these creeds were. What is a creed, I guess? We might also lump into that, the idea of being confessional. That, yeah, that's true. Uh, and uh, we are both creedal and confessional. And, and creeds refer to the, the historic creeds of the church. They tend to be – the creeds tend to be more brief. They're brief summaries of the Christian faith, of the essence of the Christian faith. So brief that you can recite them in a worship service. So brief that you can teach them to new believers and use them in, in baptism ceremonies. You know, they're just very brief and concise statements that give summary to the essence of the Christian faith. And so the most famous creeds, I think, are the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, also the Chalcedonian definition or creed. Uh, the Chalcedonian Creed is, is more lengthy than the other two. But we at Emmaus Christian Fellowship do recite the Nicene Creed before taking communion uh, each month. Sometimes we'll use the Apostles' Creed. Um, the confessions, though, are a little bit different in that – well, they're similar in that they're making declarations, right? Both mm-hmm. of them are making declarations. Sure. Here the, sure. Here's the Christian faith. Confessions are a lot longer, though. Um, they, they do touch upon the essentials of the Christian faith, things that are very important, but they do so in a more detailed and elaborate way than the creeds do. Um, but, see, there, there, there's a common principle here that I think is important. It's that we as Reformed folk don't act as if we're the first Christians ever to live on planet Earth. Oh, absolutely. The scriptures are alone our authority for truth. We never want to abandon that. Um, but we see the value of paying attention to those who have gone before us. Mm-hmm. We don't start from scratch, in other words, right. here, here in the 21st century. We say, no, the great men have gone before us, and we had better pay attention to what they have said. And if we're finding ourselves saying something novel, something new, that hasn't been said over the last... Uh, you know, two thousand years of church history. We had better, we we had better take note, you know, and, and right. take pause at that. So I think that's the idea between being creedal and confessional. It's that um, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. 
Um, That's a comforting thing, honestly, yeah. for myself and I think for others. Uh, you know, we recognize that uh, these creeds were, you know, adopted by those early believers that mm-hmm. that some of them may have walked or been discipled by uh, the apostles themselves and uh, on through um, the early church history, these great thinkers that have gone before us and, uh, you know, as as you know, Joe, you're saying the, the confessions being um, down the road, but coming out of this rich reform, uh, reformation period. Right. Um, yeah, we, we have so much to stand upon that, you know, great thinkers, great theologians have gone before us. Um, yeah. And, and really paved a, a rich path for us to, mm-hmm. to stand upon. So we're not walking in this alone. Yeah. I, I really love that we are confessional and the, the longer I uh, pastor, I mean, as Christian fellowship, the more comfort I take in the fact that we're confessional. And um, again, our, the scriptures alone are authority for truth. The 1689 London Baptist Confession is not our authority for truth, but we believe it's a very wonderful summary of the truths of scripture. And I find more and more that when I fellowship with other pastors, I'm most at home with other pastors who are also confessional. They may not adhere to the 1689 Confession. Of course, I'm very much at home with those who, who do that. Mm. But even pastors from other denominations, uh, we are not a part of a denomination. We hope to be a part of an association someday. But even pastors who are part of other denominations, uh, if they adhere to one of the great Reformed confessions, I, I just feel so at home with those guys, you know. And so there are some in, in Presbyterian denominations who adhere to the Westminster Standards, which include the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, there are others who hold to the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. And by the way, the Heidelberg Catechism is a beautiful document. Um, we, Reformed Baptists, have a version of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people know about that, but it's called the Orthodox Catechism. catechism. Yeah. It's basically the Baptist version of the Heidelberg. So it's the same, you know, by and large, except for the section on baptism. Anyways, but we um, adhere to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Maybe I should use the word subscribe. We subscribe to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. We use the Baptist Catechism to catechize our children and and new believers. And in all truthfulness, we're being catechized also by it as adults, you know, those of us who've been in the faith for a long time. And then I do point out also the Orthodox Catechism here in my notes. I see uh, it's something worth taking a look at as well. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's really helpful, you know, bringing clarity, um, keeping unity within the church, within the leadership, um, all these things. I mean, it's great. We have this as part of uh, like the confession we is part of our membership process, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it helps everyone to know really what we adhere to as a church uh, mm-hmm. together. So there's no surprises in that. You know, if you're not quite um, able to really dig into the and grasp the deeper, you know, these deeper truths that you at least know that what we believe on it. You uh, know, and that's, that's a great a, point because you're speaking to the role that the confession plays within Emmaus Christian Fellowship. In order to be an elder or a deacon, you need to fully subscribe to London Baptist Confession. It keeps us unified as a church. But if you're coming into Emmaus and you read through the confession, you go, it's so good, but you're still welcome, most likely, you know, unless there's something serious there, right? Uh, you, you say, but I believe in infant baptism, but I want a fellowship with you. We would say, thank you for letting us know about that. You're welcome here, I would imagine. Unless you're coming in saying, 
I believe in infant baptism, so I disagree with the confession, and I'm going to stir up controversy, then we probably would say this might not be the place for you. But right. the point is, is that these clearly defined doctrines um, help with the issue of bringing clarity, with keeping unity within the church, when it comes to stabilizing the teaching ministry of the church. Mm-hmm. You know at Emmaus Christian Fellowship that when people take the pulpit, they're going to be united in terms of the doctrine that they hold to, or when they teach a class. Um, you're not going to get a diversity of opinions on the scriptures at, at Emmaus. Um, that's the idea here, and of course it takes work to maintain that. Um, well, and I'd love to you know, spend another one of these uh, podcasts discussing why we even chose the, the 1689. Why, why right, is the yeah. Second London Baptist Confession something that we would subscribe to versus the Westminster uh, yeah. standards, which is probably the, the most common or mm-hmm. most well-known and um, you know, there's there's some very important things to be discussed and taught within, I guess, the differences and distinct dis- distinctive marks there. So, yeah, so much to be uh, delved into here. Yeah. After saying all of that about creeds and confessions, I, I I know it's already been said a number of times, but we still need to reaffirm this principle. We have a very high view of Scripture. Yes. scriptures alone are authority for truth because Christians today get nervous whenever they hear you start to talk about creeds and confessions they go oh you're just you know you're sold out to a tradition now and you ignore the Bible not at all read chapter one of our confession you know just go read chapter one of our confession and you will walk away understanding that at the heart of all of our doctrine is this that that the scriptures are authoritative they are necessary they are sufficient they are without error they are consistent they are clear and we are dependent upon them for truth. So if ever we see that the doctrines contained within the confession are at odds with the scripture, then the confession is gone. You know, that portion of it, we walk away from it. It's just that we believe that the confession is a good and accurate um, summary of the teaching of scripture, which is our authority for truth. And we find such value in the fact that it stood such the test of time, right? It's, right. it's been yeah. hundreds of years, and this is still something valuable and, 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 and truthful. So. It's been a hun- hundreds of years since it was written, but also when you read the language of the confession, you see that the men who penned it originally were drawing upon those who had gone before them. So it's been hundreds right, of years right. since it was written, but it was hundreds of years in its development as well. They weren't doing something novel exactly. either. So mm-hmm. anyways, we should probably move on from that. Um, you know, another thing that comes to mind is that we have a very high view of the church and high view of, of preaching and the ordinances and discipline and worship and evangelism. Um, this also is a characteristic of, of, of a reformed church here. Uh, I hope you get the sense of that when you come to worship at Emmaus Christian Fellowship, that well, I hope you see that we're joyous people and that we love one another, that we love God. But also I hope you get the sense that, hey, they kind of take this thing seriously. Yeah. You know, they, they have a high esteem for mm. what happens uh, within the church. You know, they take the preaching seriously. They take the Lord's Supper seriously and baptism and even the issue of discipline. I, you know, it's so important, I think, for pastors to be involved in the lives of their people and for the people of the church to be involved with one another to where we are holding one another accountable in significant ways. It's kind of a buzzword, right? You need to be in accountability groups. Uh, You need to have someone holding you accountable. That's kind of a thing that Christians talk about a lot. I would agree with that, but I would say that accountability only takes place in a true and biblical way in the context of a church where pastors are involved in the lives of their people and where the people are involved with one another, you know? And so when we use the word discipline, it's not that we're looking for someone to punish, it's not the idea. It's that we really believe that we are to 
be in one another's lives and hold one another accountable in the Christian faith. And I guess we could yeah. say a lot about worship too. Uh, we do take our, our worship, our worship through music, our worship service as a whole mm-hmm. seriously so that what takes place on the Lord's day is according to scripture. Right. And we could go on a, a lot about that too. Yeah. In a whole nother episode. I'm sure we will. We need to wrap this up, I yeah. think guys, but anything else come to mind? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a couple other things we could say, but um, in, in all of this, uh, I, I'd really like to bring up the point of uh, that I've found within Emmaus that I, I think we, we do a good job of, or the leadership does a good job of, is uh, the principle of semper reformanda, right? That we are uh, always reforming, right? So the church isn't just set in these traditions, but we are always taking these principles back to uh, back up on to the table and, and re-examining and readdressing uh, is this how scripture has uh, I guess taught us to to worship him, uh, our Lord and Savior and you know our our, our practices uh, being done in a, a worthy manner of uh, I guess as we follow our follow our God and serve him so um, yeah. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree reformed and always reforming mm-hmm and as a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church, I mean, I, I love what the Lord has done with Emmaus Christian Fellowship up to this present day. Um, it's a rich experience, but by no means do I feel as if things are just kind of set and done and we're good sure. to roll. Um, to autopilot and just coast no, through. No, you know, there's more that needs to be addressed. And even the things that have been addressed have to constantly be ma- maintained uh, because the evil one himself is always prowling to, to pick us apart, you know, and to cause mm-hmm. us to... to abandon the faith that's been entrusted to us. And so uh, I'm glad you said that, Austin. That is such an important principle. Uh, Reformed folk, I think, also tend to see that, um, that, that, that Christian doctrine and the Christian faith ought to permeate the whole of life. So what we do in church during our corporate worship together doesn't end there. It, it just begins there. We're to take the truths we hear from the scriptures and put them into practice in our homes and in our workplaces and in the community. Mm. You know, I think that's such an important principle as well. Well, it's Um, so easy for us, I think as Americans, especially we get so compartmentalized, right? We have our work life, we have our church life, we have mm -hmm. our social life, right? We like to keep things separate. And I think we, uh, we fall prey to that when, when we don't allow the gospel to permeate every, you know, every, single little right. uh, practice within our in our weekly, daily, whatever, uh, our lives. It's uh, something that, you know, our faith needs to cause uh, cause us to think differently, speak differently, act differently as right. we interact with people at the grocery store, at work, wherever we're at. Uh, as yeah, we vote. Yeah, as we I mean, vote. You know. yeah, absolutely. Every, every little thing, every simple task that we uh, might not think is affected by the gospel truly is, right? So the way we see God, the way we I guess worship him as sovereign and supreme. Uh, yeah, we need to we need to take these things into account as it dictates our lives. Right. I think even as we parent our children, one thing that just comes to mind is that you know we really do encourage the families of Emmaus to do family worship and to mm. disciple their children, and for husbands to take the lead in that, and for wives to be very much involved in that process. Of course, uh, that's why we put the catechism in in the parents' hands, and we say, "Go teach your children these wonderful truths." Also, uh, and maybe we don't emphasize this enough because the catechism is new to us and, and, and we're, we, we kind of put our focus there, but read the scriptures to your children, especially as they get older. I mean, Emmaus has a lot of real little ones who they probably wouldn't comprehend the reading of Psalm 57 or something like that. But as they get older, read the scriptures to your kids at home. 
um, as a way of modeling to them how the Christian faith is to permeate the whole of life. We, we can start the day and end the day with Scripture reading in our mm-hmm. in our households, and therefore bring Christ and and um, His truth into the home in a very pronounced way. Um, one more thing comes to comes to mind, and it seems kind of out of order. And you know, I should have brought it up earlier, I guess. But uh, we as Reform folk tend to be covenantal, also, and that's a theological term. But what it means is that we see. Uh, that God deals uh, with man. He has dealt with man in human history by way of making covenants with him. I almost hesitate to bring it up because there's so much to say about that, right? That's a whole series of episodes in the future, I guess. But I wanted to introduce it here that a Reformed folk tend to be covenantal in their understanding of the history of redemption, and they tend to be covenantal in their understanding of the scriptures. We see that covenants, the Adamic covenant, and then later the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Davidic, you know, and ultimately the the New Covenant. These are the, uh, the, the, the this is the skeletal structure of Holy Scripture, and so there's a whole lot there. But I figured it, it it's good to um, uh, good to say uh, before we conclude this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, this is this is awesome stuff here. We can keep going. I'm excited for us to to dive into some of these uh, topics more in depth later on. Um, well, we didn't even get to uh, what it means to be a Baptist yet, so that's you know that's going to be another. Well, let, let me let me address that real quick before we close. Oh yeah, and I'll do it in just right. I'll do it in just one word. It's been a long episode already, but I'll do it in just a, you know a quick sentence. You know, we are Reformed Baptists, and what we mean when we say we are Baptists, we're not saying that we are part of a particular denomination. Okay, we are not Southern Baptists or General Baptists or whatever else kind of Baptists there are. What we're saying is that we have a particular view of the church. We, we don't have a presbytery over us. We believe that the authority of the church resides within the church itself. There's a lot to talk about there. Uh, but also we have a particular view on baptism. We believe that baptism is um, for believers only and not for children. So really, Reformed Baptist is pertaining to those things, even probably more strongly the issue of baptism itself than the other. But if you want to know more about that, you can see chapter 26 and also chapter 28 and 29 of our Confession of Faith. So, yeah. yeah. Well, all right, guys, uh, thank you guys for joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Confessing the Faith. Mm-hmm.